I enjoyed when I was growing up being a twin for the most part. It was kind of a special thing to look like somebody else. Uh, but there were some negatives about being a twin. If you're a twin, I imagine that you can relate to some of these negatives. For example, there were occasions where I got blamed for something my brother did. You know, just because I look like him doesn't mean I did it. Uh, but that would happen sometimes, sir. There were some occasions where the teachers uh, in our classes would tend to compare us. Remember once the Spanish teacher in our high school actually yelled at my twin brother because he didn't care as much about Spanish as I did. I was getting an A. And he pulled him aside and said, why can't you get an A like your twin brother as if, if you look alike, you should be able to get the same grades or have the same interests or whatever. We just didn't. But people thought that. But the worst part of being a twin was the fact that um, we had different friends, but our friends seemed to think they knew us, even if we'd never met them before. But because I look like Tom, Tom's friends would think I should know who they are, that I should know their names. And I wouldn't know their names, and, and so it, it ended up being, I, I find myself not even wanting to say any name because it's probably wrong. I didn't know if it was one of my friends, one of Tom's friends or whatever, but this, this would happen sometimes where, um, you know, we get kind of confused about the brothers and as if one of us should know what the other one's going through. Uh, my twin brother, for example, was in New York City uh, about a year or two ago, and he said he was at the airport, and someone came up to him who knew me. And he went up to my twin brother and said, Tim, how are you doing? And my twin brother tried to tell him, I'm not Tim. I'm Tom, but the guy didn't believe him. He knew I kid around, and Tom kids around too, so it's like you never know for sure. But Tom insisted, no, I'm not Tim, but the guy didn't, never did believe. Never did believe. And so sometimes being a twin, you got into some arguments and debates. You watched it all around you. We only switched classes once, as I've told you before, toward the end of our senior year of high school. The classes were like a door or two down from each other, so we just switched. And I sat down in Tom's class, and I said hi to the people who said hi to me. See, you realize I don't know who they are, but if somebody's friendly, oh, hi, how are you? Well, a, a debate broke out among these other students. Some said, that's not Tom. Others said, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. They're going back and forth. It wasn't until the teacher from the other class came in, walked over to our teacher, they talked, and in a few minutes, Tom and I were switching back again, and they got the answer to the question. Uh, today, we're going to continue a series I began last week titled The Final Week. It's a series that's it, about the week leading up to when Jesus was arrested and crucified and buried and then raised again from the dead. But one of the themes we'll see in this week is that there are these constant debates among the people as to the identity of this person, Jesus. He is the Messiah. No, he's not the Messiah. Yes, he is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the descendant of David. No, he's not. He's just a prophet. There were debates that were going on about the identity of this one named Jesus. Now, if you were here last week, we covered what has been called in Christian circles the event of Palm Sunday. It's called Palm Sunday because about a week before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he came into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, but as he was going along the donkey, people were throwing their coats along the dirt roads so that the donkey wouldn't get its feet dirty. I mean, this was a, a statement of tremendous honor. 
And on top of that, people are cutting branches and palm branches and putting it on the ground. And so we call that Palm Sunday. And I mentioned last week that when Jesus came into town, this to me is the clearest and most explicit form of him saying, I am the Messiah. See, up to this point, people wondered, but Jesus, Jesus was claiming it. He did something that was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah that the Messiah was going to come into the city on a donkey. And the people began to sing the praise of Jesus as this king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord as he's going down this path. They were acknowledging it, and Jesus did not correct them on this occasion. He received it. Even the religious leaders said, you better silence your disciples. And he said, I can't silence them. If I did, even the stones would cry out, I'm worthy of this praise. It's the first time that I can think of in the Gospels where he's just so explicit about who he is. But when he got to the city, the way they viewed him is surprising to me a little bit. It's found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. It says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Crowd kept saying, who is this? They had an opportunity to say who it was. And the answer they choose is it's a prophet from Nazareth. A little dive of a town. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? One of the disciples asked Jesus. Any good thing come out of Nazareth? This is the prophet from Nazareth. There's a little tiny town, and I'm thinking, I'm just disappointed. I thought by now they would begin to catch who this is. Now they were still debating it. Who are you? Who are you claiming to be? But to land on, well, he's just a prophet from some no-name town over here, and of no one of significance hardly. But as we're going to see today, Jesus is going to present himself in a new light through a story that he's going to tell a couple days later. And it's a story that I think all of us need to stop and reflect on because we need to decide if Jesus is correct when he makes the claim he's going to be making in the story. Now, let me set the timeline for where we are today. As I mentioned, the Sunday before the Passover, or the Sunday before he was arrested, which was a Thursday night, he came into the city, or arrived at the city on a donkey. He had traveled two miles from the town of Bethany. And they, of course, again, were singing his praises. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The next day was Monday. Jesus walked into the temple on Monday, and he cleaned house. Some of you know the story. We walked into the part of the temple that's supposed to be devoted to Gentiles or non-Jews. It was supposed to be this quiet place, and they, they turned it into a marketplace, and they were selling animals, and they were buying, and they were trading money, and we know they were also dishonest. They were thieves in the process. I think the priests were getting a little bit under the table. And Jesus on Monday walked into that situation, and he just tore up the place. He, he turned over the tables. He knocked over the chairs. He dragged people out of the temple. And he made a statement that gets to his identity that we're going to look at today, although I don't know if anyone picked up on it. 
he said these words. He said, my house or my father's house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. My father's house. He was quoting from the Old Testament, but he was owning it. This is dad's place. This is why he's so fired up about it. And it's not the only time he did this, by the way. He began his ministry this way. Now he's ending his ministry this way, establishing this is my father's house. I have an opinion about it. The story we're going to look at briefly today is the story that took place the next day, Tuesday. Jesus was teaching in the temple. We pick up the story in Luke 20, verses 1 and 2. One day, which we now know to be Tuesday, as he was teaching the people in the temple complex and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So he's teaching away. They walk up to him. They're referring specifically to what he did the day before. By what authority are you doing this and who gave it to you? Because they're thinking in their minds, we're the only people that give authority around here, and we didn't give it to you. Where'd you get the authority, and who's giving it to you? Now, Jesus initially didn't answer him. He said, I'll give you a question, which is many times a good way to discuss or debate something. Well, let me ask you something. And that's what he did. He said, I'll answer you if you answer me. Here's the question Jesus asked. John the Baptist, was he from God or not? Now, he's really getting to the root issue here, like by what authority did John do his ministry? John the Baptist, was he from God or not? And so the religious leaders did a little huddle over here, and they discussed it, and they realized that every answer was bad. You know, if we say that John the Baptist was from God, Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? Especially when he was pointing at me, the Messiah. Why didn't you listen to him? But... If they said, we think John the Baptist like made the whole thing up, like he's not a prophet, he's not from God, the people would be so upset about it, they might stone him. They'd get mad at him. And so these religious leaders said, well, we're afraid of the people, so we can't say that answer, but I'm certainly not going to give any credit to Jesus here, so I can't say that answer. So they come back to Jesus, and they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you either which basically was saying, yeah, you don't know, I don't know. He knew they were lying about it. But then Jesus told a story that did indeed lay out who he was. It's found in beginning in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20. Then he began to tell the people this parable. I do find it interesting, by the way, he's addressing it to the people, not to the religious leaders. He told them, I won't tell you. Maybe they walked away, maybe they didn't. But he began to tell the people this parable, this story with a point. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He also sent yet another slave, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And they sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir, let's kill him. So the inheritance will be ours. 
So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, he said, no, never. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected? This has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and if it falls on anyone, it'll grind him to powder. Then the scribes and chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So apparently they're still standing around. He tells a parable, and the various aspects of this parable relate to some truths in Jesus' day. The vineyard, for example, represents the nation of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, when you read about a vineyard or whatever, it's symbolic of the nation of Israel. So is, by the way, the fig tree. So when Jesus cursed the fig tree, it was a picture of Israel. The one who planted and who owns the vineyard is God. God's the one who planted it. Again, this is found in the Old Testament, how God took some land, he cleared the stones away, he planted the best seed, he watered it, he took care of it, he weeded it, expected wonderful grapes. That's what God has done. He birthed the nation of Israel out of nothing, but he's the one that created it, and he's the one who owns the vineyard. The leaders don't own it. Jesus does. The tenant farmers that were sent to the field represents prophets and other leaders. Throughout Israel's history, God sent prophets to try to steer the people back in the right way. Prophets to lead the people. This is what is the way to go. Walk in this. Turn from your idols. God loved the people. He kept sending messengers to talk to the people. But how were these prophets treated? Well, some were stoned. Some were beaten. One of them, like, I think it was Jeremiah, was thrown into a well where the mud came up to his, his waist. They mistreated prophet after prophet, and some, some of these representatives, they killed. And so in our story, these servants that are coming to the leaders to collect the crop, they, well, they're the, the prophets, and then the son and the heir who was to be killed was Jesus. And the ones who were going to do it were these religious leaders. You see, in our parable, they said, well, why don't we send the son? At least they'll respect the son. And when the son showed up, the religious leader said, let's kill him. He's the son. He's the heir. It all belongs to him. Now, how does the story end? You know the different parts of the story? Well, he destroys. The landowner destroys those people. I love the way Matthew tells the story because the religious leaders explain part of the story in Matthew's recounting of it. In Matthew 21 and verse 41, when Jesus asked, what do you think he's going to do to them? Those tenant farmers who were not giving their share, what will he do? They answered, he will completely destroy those terrible men. They indicted themselves. Religious leaders even acknowledge this is terrible what those landowners did. 
This land belonged to somebody else. They were supposed to give a share of the crop. They're unwilling to do it. And then they kill the messengers, and then they kill the son. He needs to die. That was the indictment, but I'm saying that it was an indictment they were making against themselves. But here's what I want us to see about this story, the point that Jesus was making in this story. He was claiming to be the son. He was claiming to be the son of God. That's a, that's a big deal. Jesus was saying in this story, I am not just a prophet. I, I'm not just a religious leader who is sent here to, to tell you what to do. That's not who I am. I'm not one of them. God said in his heart, I'm going to send my one and only son into this world. And Jesus, of course, here was predicting his own death. He was predicting that you guys are going to kill me. And, of course, they got that. They knew that that's what it was about, that they were about to fulfill this prophecy. Of course, Jesus knew it, and he went straight for it. That's the love of Christ. He loves us so much as to go straight for it. He knew the cross was waiting for him, and he knew this is what was going to happen to him. But this claim, I find this claim remarkable. It's my father. The same thing he had said, that this is my father's house. To claim that God was his father. What are the implications of that, and what does that mean for our own lives? Well, I think there are some takeaways that we should have, some applications that should apply to our lives if it's true, if Jesus really is not just a, a prophet, not just a teacher, but if he's God, the Son, and the Son of God. There are certain things that the Gospels indicate we should do in relation to him. The first one is this, that we should listen to him. If he's the Son of God and God the Son, we should listen to what he had to say which is what God said on a couple of occasions. But toward the end of his ministry, you might remember that Jesus took a couple of his closest friends. He went up on a mountain, and he changed dramatically in front of their eyes. It's an event that's called the transfiguration. He was transfigured. He began to glow like the sun itself in its glory. In this moment's time, I love the transfiguration because in a moment's time, Jesus burst out of what he was. Just this man, people think he's just a man, and for a moment he gave these guys a glimpse of what his eternal self looked like, the very glory of God in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory. And so for a moment he was glowing, and Peter and John were up there, should we make a tent for you guys and everything else? But we pick up the story in Matthew 17 and 5 where we get to this first takeaway. Suddenly a bright cloud covered them, while they were on this mountain. And a voice from the cloud said this, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. You listen to him. You listen to this one. See, people are listening to lots of voices these days, and voices of other religious leaders who have various backgrounds of various kinds, but Jesus was claiming that his background was heaven, that he was with God since the beginning. Of course, John wrote that about him, that through Christ all things were created. My point is he has the inside scoop. And so when he talks about things, when he talks about what life is about and where joy is found and how to treat other people, all the things we read about in the Gospels and how to get to heaven and how to avoid hell and all these things, when he talks about these things, 
he's, he was there. He's the son of God, but God the son. And so his father, seeing him in his glory, said, you better listen to this one. Of course, after Jesus rose from the dead, he added these words, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So now go and do what I ask you to do. A second application for some of us here today is to receive him as our Savior, to understand that the fact he was God is essential to receiving him or putting your trust in him. Here in my mind, I immediately go back to John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Jesus was speaking these words to a religious leader of his day. Notice the term son of God, where here he introduced himself to this religious leader using that terminology. I don't know what Nicodemus thought of it when Jesus said these words, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, will not suffer eternal ruin, but will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, why? He's the son of God. He's the one and only son of God. Jesus was not the son of God in the sense that people are children of God. You know, there are some verses that talk about when you, when you put your trust in Christ, you become a child of God. As many as receive Jesus to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. We're children of God, but not in the same way as Jesus. He's the eternal son of God. I don't understand all the theology behind it, although at a moment he was born into this world, taking on flesh and blood. either case, he is, he was God who came into this world. He's the son of God who needs or wants or should be the object of our trust. Now, why this matters is because if he's not God, he can't save any of you. I need a deliverer. I need a savior. I need, I can't fix my sin problem. I can't earn God's favor. Heaven's a perfect place. I'm not perfect. I'm in a mess. I can't get it right. And so I read the, the whole Bible, but the New Testament especially talks about how God sent his son to be our savior. And it makes sense to me because what happened is the sinless one, because he was God in the flesh, he was sinless. He could die in our place and for our sin. He was God. He could die for the sins of the whole world. I'm just saying that the fact he was the son of God and God the son makes him qualified to be that lamb that I talked about last week without spot or blemish. If Jesus is not God, though, he can't save you. Just like any other religious leader with great ideas. Some better than others, maybe. But if he's the son of God and God the son, he's the savior of the world, he's the only one in whom we should put our trust. He's not just the founder of a religion, he's our deliverer. He died so we could have life in him. And then finally, I think being the son of God or God the son should relate to how we live our lives day by day. We should trust him every day because he's with us always. That's the thing I love about the deity of Christ. That not only can I trust when he says something and not only is he the savior of the world, but when you put your trust in Christ, the spirit of Christ comes to live inside of you because he's God, he can do that. And so he said to his closest friends, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll never reject you, I'm with you always. To the end of the age, he's with us, and that to me makes all the difference in terms of as we live our lives. 
We can live differently. We can live joyfully. There are lots of things that could be true about our lives because Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, lives inside of us, making all the difference in the world. So have you confronted who that Jesus is? For some of you, have you trusted him to be your Savior? Others of you, are you trusting what he says is true and right and learning to rely on him moment by moment and day by day? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your son Jesus in whom we have life, eternal life, but also an abundant life. I think how you told your closest friends that you came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. We acknowledge you here today for who you are, Lord Jesus, that you are not just a prophet or religious leader, but the Son of God and God the Son, Savior of the world. And we acknowledge, O oh Lord, that all things belong to you. You created all things. And we thank you, Lord, that you were willing to die in our place and for our sin, knowing who you are and what you were willing to do for us. We're filled with gratitude. Help us now to walk in step with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.